Colossians chapter 3, just by way of remembrance, and for those who haven't been able to be with us, uh, Colossians is one of the prison epistles, and it obviously was written by Paul, but he's writing to the church at Colossae in response to his friend Epaphras, who actually founded the church at Colossae. And Epaphras was concerned that there was so much heresy being taught in the city of Colossae that it would eventually find its way into the church, even though at the time the church at Colossae was very doctrinally sound, they were very strong. And we can tell at least two of the things that Paul dealt with specifically, and that was legalism and mysticism. Uh, legalism adds to the gospel because it requires works for salvation. Mysticism adds to the gospel because it adds some type of super uh, biblical or extra biblical revelation outside of the word of God. God's revealing himself through his word, through maybe visions or dreams or, you know, whatever the case may be. It gets outside of the realm of what God has revealed to us about himself and the gospel and the way to salvation. And in the first couple of chapters, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, is reminding us of who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus Christ. He gives us that foundation, and it's not until chapter 3 that we see this great transitional verse, this uh, chapter 3 and verse 1 where he says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So there's a challenge here. There's a a condition here. And he says, if you know Christ, if you're raised with Christ, if you're resurrected with Christ, if you're saved, prove it. (laughs) Because there ought to be some fruit that is connected with the root of salvation. There is no such thing as a barren Christian. Nobody who's ever been born again has a barren life with no fruit for Jesus Christ. He's not going to save somebody, regenerate them, raise them to spiritual life, indwell them by his Holy Spirit, and leave them the same way that he found them. It just doesn't happen. Such creatures don't exist. Now, are we going to be perfect as Christians? Absolutely not. But as I've said many times, uh, salvation and repentance is not about perfection. It's about direction. And the Lord changes our direction when he saves us. Uh, When you look at chapter 3, we've been looking specifically for several weeks about the resurrected life and what that looks like. He he tells us there's some things that have to be crucified. There's some things that have to die, our our evil thought life and sexual sin and our speech. But then that has to do with putting off the old man. But with putting on the new man, there are some things associated with the resurrected life, humility and holiness and mercy, and forgiveness, and and we've been looking at all these things, but when we get into our text today, and over the next few weeks, three or four weeks, we're going to be dealing with this, but Paul again shifts gears. He's still talking about living the resurrected life in Christ, but now instead of just with an individual Christian, now he's talking about the Christian family, and how the resurrected life in Christ manifest itself within the family. And so um, today, I have to kind of laugh about this. Y'all go ahead and let's get this out. So at first, when I was putting the outline together, it was going to be one sermon 
about the submission of wives and the sacrificial love of husbands. And I got two pages in and I wasn't even to point one and I said, well, I make a whole message about submissive wives and a whole message about loving husbands. And then I got four pages into it and I'm still not to point one. And I said, well, I'm going to do at least two sermons on a submissive wife. And <laughs> so anyway, uh, I knew it was going to be bad when Wesley was uh, getting a live stream ready and he said, Dad, what's your title? I always have to type in the, the title for him. And he goes, oh boy, oh boy, Riley, come look at this. Come look at this. <laughs> anyway, no need to be uncomfortable here. Uh, Y'all know what happens if you show some discomfort. We'll just back the mule up and drop the plow. So <clears throat> anyway, uh, really, I, I say this in jest, and I, I joke about these things, but when it comes to submission in general, it's really become a cuss word in our society. And we are going to talk about what biblical submission looks like in the life of a wife, but I don't want you to look at this so narrowly that you think there's no way this can apply to me. You may not even be a woman this morning. You may not be a wife. And you say, well, how does this apply to me? Because submission is a biblical principle that has been greatly misunderstood. Uh, Christ was submitted to the will of God the Father, even being obedient unto the death of the cross. We're commanded to be submissive to government power so long as uh, they don't command us to go against God. We see that in the book of Acts when uh, the apostles were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They said we ought to obey God rather than man. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, we're, wives are to be submitted husbands. Christians are to be uh, to, submitted to Christ. And we see in Ephesians where husbands and wives are even on some level submitted to one another. And so submission is a great biblical doctrine. It's a great attribute of godly, spirit-filled Christians, and I think we have greatly misunderstood it, or it wouldn't make us so uncomfortable. So we're going to see that. Um, let's, let's go ahead and read our text. I'll read uh, more verses than I'm going to preach out of, but I want to give the, the greater context here. Colossians 3 and verse 18. It says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we're so thankful for salvation in Christ. And Lord, I'm so thankful for this church body that you put here together. I don't believe that anybody is here by mistake. Uh, be with them, Lord. I pray that uh, you be with those that are watching online and God, wherever we are in our spiritual walk, I pray that you would show us our shortcomings. God, show us where we uh, need to be closer to you, things that need to be made right. If somebody's lost, Lord, they don't know Jesus in the part of their sins, I pray that you would draw them to saving faith today. Lord, I pray that you would empty me of sin and self. God, that only Christ would be magnified and seen. And I pray that Christ 
would be seen not only in our individual lives, but in our families. And also, we know that if that happens, it'll be seen in our church as well. Lord, search our hearts and try us today and show us where we fall short, that you may grant us repentance. Hide me behind the shadow of the cross, and it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So Paul transitions here, as I said, and he is looking at not only the Christ-centered person, the resurrected life within individuals, but also within the family. And the truth is, if, if our Christianity, if our um, faith in Christ has no power within our own life, it's not going to have power within our families. And if it doesn't have power within our families, it's not going to have power in the church and in a lost and dying world. Uh, weak families equal weak churches, and strong families equal strong churches. And it just, it just stands to reason that Paul would talk about family relationships as it pertains to the resurrected life in Christ. And I love what J.C. Winger wrote. He said, Christianity burst into a corrupt world with a brilliantly new moral radiance. The moral level of society was dismal, and sin prevailed in many forms. Into this discouraged world came Christ and his spirit-filled disciples, filled with a holy joy, motivated by a love which the pagans could not grasp, and proclaiming the good news, the message that God has provided a Savior. These Christians lived in tiny communities, knit together in the power of the Holy Spirit, little colonies of heaven. They thought of themselves as pilgrims on their way to the celestial city, but they were very much concerned to manifest the love of Christ in all human relationships. And so Christ's impact upon the family should be a shining light to the world. And I want to preach this morning on the thought of the power of a submissive wife. And you've probably never put the words power and submissive in the same sentence, but I promise you, they go together. And the submission that we hear about so much in the world from the detractors and even from within the church about what submission is concerning a wife, I, I find rather horrifying, to be honest with you. Uh, because the biblical doctrine is beautiful and it's powerful. And we're going to look at that. Today really is going to be more of an introduction for what we're going to be getting into next week. I'm going to be talking about today, I really want us to grasp what biblical submission is first. We're going to look at that today. But then next week, we're going to look at uh, the power of a submissive wife. The Bible actually gives several places and points that give specific power that a woman gets in her submission. You might be surprised by that. But today, we have to understand what this is. We've been taught so many wrong things, we have to see what's right about it. Verse 18, Paul begins uh, with wives, not because they need the most help, amen? Um, but he says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And, and so, as I said, this has really become a, a cuss word, but over this sermon series, uh, I'm going to prove to you I had to change that too. I said sermon. I had to go back and say sermon series. But I'm going to try to prove to you through this series uh, that there is power in uh, submission, biblical submission. And before we talk about what submission is, I do need to talk about what submission is not. 
Submission does not mean that a woman is less than a man in value, dignity, intellect, or ability. That's, it's not even up for debate. That's not what's being discussed here. Submission is not a requirement for a woman to be a floor mat or to take constant abuse from her husband. I don't believe that's biblical. I can't find that. Submission does not require that a woman sin against God because her husband commands her to do so. Uh, I believe in the same way that we're commanded to obey government, and yet we see the exception. Uh, I believe it's the same way in a marriage. I don't, I don't believe God is commanding a woman to obey her husband to sin against God, if that were to ever happen. Uh, submission is not a woman walking around with her head down, dressed like a nun, with no ability to make decisions for herself. That's not biblical either. And uh, I'll, get, I'll get more into this later on in the message. But, you know, that's one of the, the, the hurdles that, that Leah and I had to, to overcome in our marriage. And, and that is in the background in which she was raised, the, the environment in which she was raised, those circumstances, um, submission was greatly misinterpreted. And it was to the point where I literally had to convince her, no, I, I value your opinion. No, I, I really want to know what you think about this. And, and you, you really can tell me how you feel about that. And, and I really do want a, a team player. Like, this is not, this is not a master-servant relationship here. Now, some men want it that way, and I think they've lost their minds. And it's certainly not biblical. We're going to get there in a minute. Y'all just y'all go ahead and buckle up. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> But I really do, and, and, and she struggled for a long time with that because that was not the way that she was raised. Uh, a woman's opinion doesn't really matter. It just doesn't, doesn't count. And, and I'm sure that some of you have probably seen that. Maybe some of you uh, were raised in that. It's not biblical. Amen. It's not healthy. It's not holy. It's not godly. It's not Christ-like. It's about as carnal as the day is long. And I would say to the men, if you would use a verse like Colossians 3.18 against your wife, you have no clue what biblical love is and you have no clue what biblical submission is if you would hold it over her head like that. Um, so that's not what submission is. I'll get back on that in a minute. But this does lead us to what submission is. And, and I find this very, this really stuck out. I told you, I learned something every time I studied the Bible, and this really stuck out to me as I read this text here. But, but I find it interesting that in the society in which Paul wrote this, the culture was such that women were already very subjugated compared to the way things are in the West. I mean, women in this time that Paul is writing, now this is true both of the Jews and in the Roman world. And the Greeks as well, it was just, that's the way things were. Women pretty much entirely depended on men to take care of them. Daughters depended on their father, and later on when they got married, they depended on their husband to put a roof over their head and food on the table. Welfare just didn't exist like it does today. And so um, women were very subjugated, and also in this time, women did not divorce men. It just didn't happen. It was always the other way around. It was men divorcing and putting away their wife, in which case he could kick her out into the street. Uh, Jesus had to deal with this because the Jews, in many cases, had gotten so liberal. I mean, they could have kicked her out the door for burning the toast. It was that bad. And it was during this time 
when women were already in this state of subjugation, that Paul says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Now, why would he tell them to do something they were already doing? Something that was already ingrained in them by the culture in which they lived, unless he was telling them to do something above and beyond what they were already doing. I find it interesting here that he tells the wives to submit to their husbands, but he tells the children to obey their parents, and he tells the the servants to obey their masters, but he didn't tell the wives to obey their husbands. All the women are like, Amen, preacher. (laughs) Now listen, don't get me wrong. Obedience is definitely within the realm of submission. But they're two different things. One of them is on a higher plane than the other. You see, and this is what you have to get. If you don't hear anything else that's said, you have to hear this. There is a difference between compliance and submission. And that's where I think we've gotten it wrong. There's a difference between compliance and submission. Uh, My granddaddy used to, I'm not making this up, he used to, he, he loved sweet tea, and, and I can say amen to that, but uh, it would get to the point where he would have that iced tea, and if that tea got too low, or if it got empty, he would just rattle the ice in the glass, and she just came running, and they thought that was, uh, they thought that was biblical submission. Oh, we, we got him trained, we're doing good, I'm still working on Leah, but it hadn't took you. <laughs> No, I, I say that, but what that is, that's compliance. That's, that's blind, unquestioned obedience. That sounds more like something that a slave would do for a slave owner instead of a wife doing for a husband. You see, there's a difference between compliance and submission. You see, compliance can be gotten by bullies. A bank robber gets compliance from the bank teller when he shoves a gun in their face and says, give me all your money. That's not submission. That's compliance. That's what bullies do. And so you see there's a difference in husbands. You ought not settle for compliance. If you're happy with compliance, there's a big problem in your heart. So this is what we have to get. It is possible to have obedience and compliance without jovial submission. That's not what he commands from the wife. Submission is more intimate. It's more personal and more loving. And and I would say that, you know, children should joyfully submit to their parents. But there are going to be times where they just aren't going to understand why parents do what they do. And in that case, they're just going to settle for obedience. Uh, That's just the way that it is. The same could be said uh, for servants. But submission is a joyous Christian virtue that isn't limited to just women. As I mentioned earlier, Christ joyfully submitted to the will of His Father. Going to the cross, Christians joyfully submit to God and His Word. And many times, obedience only goes skin deep and has to do with our actions. This is why submission is better and it's higher, because submission has to do with our heart. It has to do with our motivations. Um... I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I'll just give you the cliff notes because it bears repeating uh, the story of the man whose teenage son got to the point where he didn't want to obey him, and 
the daddy told him to sit down and he, he wouldn't sit down, so the dad physically made him sit down. And the young man told him, he said, that's okay, I'm still standing up on the inside. You see, he might have complied, but he didn't submit. You see, Christ, uh, he wants our submission. And so, ladies, let me say that you have a biblical mandate. I mean, it's right here in black and white. There's no way to sugarcoat this. I'm going to explain it. But it says uh, that you are to willingly submit to your husband. I'm going to come back to that. But I want to get on the men. I'm going to stay on the men for a minute. I would say to the men, when it comes to the way that your wife responds to you, are, are you content with just getting her compliance or do you want submission? And I did say submission and not compliance on that. See, compliance can be coerced through fear and intimidation, but submission must be earned by truth and integrity. So, man, if your wife doesn't respect you, you have to ask yourself, why is that? Because respect is not something that can be intimidated into somebody. It's not something that can be browbeat or yelled at or coerced. Respect has to be earned. There's no shortcut to respect. So the question is, if she doesn't respect you, then why is that? It's, it's a great mirror. It's a great reason to ask that question because many times the way that a wife responds to her husband it is a great barometer for his character and i've been to several uh you know preaching meetings and bible conferences and revivals and i mean you can just pretty much go every week where i came from just about and over the years what i learned to do when i'm listening to a preacher for the first time i really don't know him i don't know who he is um, what I will do while he's preaching, I will, I look over his wife, and I will look at the way she looks at him. Because if she's over there and she's browbeat and she's, you know, she's looking at him with those sullen eyes and you can just see the bitterness in her face, I know he's a hypocrite. Now, I understand that's not a foolproof, 100% accurate test, but I'm telling you, I found it to be right a whole lot more than it's been wrong. But I tell you what I love, I love it when uh, I see a man up there preaching, I look over there and his wife is just beaming. And she's amen in everything that he says as if he wasn't even her husband. And it's because she's seen him when he's not preaching that pulpit. She's seen him when he's mad. She's seen him when he's hurt. She's seen him when he's... His faith is wavering. She's seen him at his best and his worst. And she knows that that man is real. And that he lives what he preaches. I love that. When I see that, it don't matter if I know that man or not. I'm getting right in there with her and amen in what she's saying. Because that is the greatest test of a man's character, I believe. is the way that his wife and children respond to him. Uh, one of my favorite uh, figures in history is Jonathan Edwards. I think he was the greatest theologian ever born on American soil. His life is amazing. You'll remember him, probably all of you remember, preach, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that sermon that sparked the Great Awakening. Most people don't know what happened after that, how he was kicked out of his own church because he refused to serve communion to non-believers, how they wouldn't, the church wouldn't even, you know, he owned his house, but the church owned the property behind his house. They would not even let that man plant crops to feed his own family. He was exiled to 
basically be a missionary uh, to the Mohican Indians. Uh, this, this Yale valedictorian, the, the, the author and the preacher of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached to half a dozen Mohican children in a boarding school for 10 years. Nothing was too big for him. I'd write, I've written a lot about John Edwards, and one thing that's really impressed me is when he died, the things his wife said about him. Greatest compliment. I mean, you, you can make a list of accomplishments that Jonathan Edwards has. Nothing was greater than what his wife said about him because she saw him at his worst and at his best, at his highs and lows, and he never wavered. And so I'm, I'm telling you, if, if I was to have, if, if your wife was just to be honest and talk about you, man, what would she say? Listen, don't get quiet on me. I feel the tension and I'm liking it. And the truth is, I, listen, I triple dog dare you. You have to do it. <laughs> Man, I triple dog dare you. I'm not playing. I'm not joking. I'm serious as a heart attack in the desert. Go get your wife alone and sit her down and ask her the things that you do in your life that either annoy her or hurt her and see what she says. Because what I found is that most of the time men are oblivious to the things that they do to their wife that hurt them. They think they're doing okay, but here's, see, here's the problem. See, I realized um, later on when, when I stood there, when we stood there before the preacher and made our vows and, and I vowed to love her, I thought, well, I'm just going to love her like I would want to be loved. I'm going to love her you know, like it was myself, but I can't do that. And you can't do that. And the reason is because we have different lists of what that looks like. Man, you may be doing great on your list, but I got bad news for you. She's got a whole nother list whether she's told you about it or not. So when you get home and you say, show me your list, and she pulls out something about this thick, don't get surprised, okay? <laughs> and just to show you I'm not a hypocrite, I did this yesterday. I sat Leah down. I said, listen, I'm preaching on this tomorrow, and I, did, I just want to have a clean conscience, and I, I want to know. And I said, man, I'm fixing to get an A on this report card. Y'all watch this. <laughs> but she did. She told me, she said, Brandon, you know, she told me all these wonderful, amazing, redeeming qualities. <laughs> and then she threw a butt in there. <laughs> and she said, listen, you still got a problem with that phone. And I do. It's a habit. I don't even think about it. It's, I mean, I just like, it's like a mindless monkey. I, I just, it just happens. And she says, sometimes I feel, well, oh, I hit a root right there. She said, I feel like I'm competing with that. I was like, oh, maybe a C-plus will do. <laughs> but she did, and she was serious, and she wasn't joking. So I had to ask God to help me with that. And so by the grace of God, I'm going to overcome that. But see, I was oblivious to that. And I'll tell you another story on the same line. I had a man reach out to me about some counseling. Him and his wife were going through some troubles, and you know, before we really got serious into the counseling, I just thought it'd be nice if, if maybe my family and their family could get together and go out to eat and just talk and kind of, you know, just you know, make it more comfortable, you know. And the whole time we're there, this poor woman, his wife, you know, she's got all the kids, you know, most of them are really young, and she's feeding, you know, about two, three kids, and this one's whining, this one's crying. She needed eight arms to do what needed to be done. And even me, being an oblivious man, I'm thinking, what in the world is he doing? Like, no wonder they got problems. 
and never helped her, so oblivious, didn't have a clue what she was going through. And even I knew as soon as we got in the car and shut the door, Leo was going to say, did you see how he did his wife? But And she did. And I said, I, I did see it, believe it or not. I saw that. So the next time I had a, a counseling session just with that man, and I asked him, I said, what do you, if your wife was to list her biggest complaints against you, what do you think she would say? And he, I'm not making this up. He had to think really hard. And he said, well, she, she probably gets upset because I, I take too long of showers and I use too much water every month on the, you know, doing a shower. And I'm thinking, <laughs> and? Because I've got a list bigger than that and all I did was eat out with you. See, men get oblivious. We've got our list, and man, we're, we're putting food on the table. We're paying the bills, baby. We're working hard. I mean, look, look at this specimen of a husband. But she's got a different list. I dare you. I, I dare you to ask for that list. Because I promise you she's got one. And if you ain't man enough to do that, you're not going to be a very good husband. And by the way, this is good advice, too, with your children. When something's wrong, you know, maybe, maybe you see some pent-up frustration in their life and, you know, you're not connecting with it. There's just something there. Sit down and ask them as a dad, hey, what's going on? Hey, have I done something maybe to offend or hurt you? And, and, and it may be that, hey, it may just be their perception. It just needs to be cleared up. But it may be something that you need to work on. See, the devil likes to work in the dark. Satan works in the dark. He doesn't work out in the open like this. He, he would hate that. And so, men, you need to do that. And so I, I said all that to say this, men. Yes, the wife has a biblical mandate to submit to the husband, but can I, I'm going to make a bold statement here. Men, you're at least half responsible for the submission of your wife. Because submission is a heart issue. And the most that you could ever get from her through intimidation is compliance. And if you want to settle for her compliance and not her heart and not biblical godly submission because of her respect and trust for you, you got a problem in your heart. You're settling way too low. My goodness, it's quiet. I may have to preach four messages on this. <laughs> so, compliance can be coerced through fear, but only submission comes through respect and trust. And like I said, bullies, listen, bullies get compliance. Real men get submission and respect. And a loving, listen, a loving, godly husband that has an unsubmissive wife, I would say is in the same storybook with Bigfoot. Uh, you might hear of some signs and sighting, but I've never seen the real thing. I would add the only exception to that is if perhaps if a, a saved man has an unsaved wife, then obviously she's not going to care about him you know, being in the will of God or this or that. I've seen issues in that situation. But in the normal course of things, a loving, godly, respectable man is not going to have an issue with that. Just not. And so, back to the ladies for a minute. If you, if, if, listen, if the thought of joyfully submitting to your husband's authority bothers you, gets your stomach in knots, you ought to ask why. I ask the men if your wife doesn't respect you, why? But if you have problem giving that submission and that authority, why is that? I mean, I'm sure that you could probably come up with a list of, of reasons on his end, but on your end, why is that? Because it is ultimately a command 
to the wife. So why is that? We need to ask these questions. Well, the truth is, and this may surprise you, the truth is that this friction, this problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And uh, let's go to Genesis 3 very quickly. I hadn't put the parachute out yet, but we're coming in for a landing. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have sinned against God and he is dealing out the discipline. And in Genesis 3 and verse 16, under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow in conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Now listen, when it talks about the wife's desire being to the husband. This is not just talking about desiring him. I mean, hopefully it was that way before the fall. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the woman desiring to be in the place of authority that the man holds. That's exactly what it means. And it's proven by the fact that it says, and thy desire shall be thy husband and he shall rule over thee. That's why that goes together. And you say, oh, so this friction is God's fault. No, this friction is man's fault. Not only did they disobey God, God, listen, God here, I mean, yes, he, he does say, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, but he doesn't say that about this. This is a natural outflow of the fall. And that is that, that mankind, our society, wants to reverse the God-given roles and authority. And we see that clearly, don't we? Listen, the feminist movement is straight out of hell. You know, they started out trying to make women to be like men. Now it's got to the point where they're trying to turn women into men. That's where we've gotten to. That's where we're at. And so that's where it comes from. But it goes all the way back to the garden. God tells them, hey, there's going to be a friction there. There's going to be a desire for the woman to usurp that God-given authority. The man, she's going to desire to be in his place. And so there's going to be some friction there. And yes, the man is very much responsible for the way that his wife responds to him. But you're responsible too. And there's, a, there's just a natural desire to flip the script there. We see it everywhere. But I'll say this, I, I mentioned the, the feminist movement being straight out of hell. But I'll also say this, you know, if you ever, you know, watch the news or you've seen any footage of like a, a women's rights march or maybe like a pro-abortion rally, which is almost exclusively women, I mean, they're just so angry at everybody and everything. There's just such a, a vitriol. They're not happy. Like if I was, you know, if I was a woman and I was thinking about getting into the women's rights movement, as soon as I saw that, I'd say, no, that's not for me. They're angry at everything. Well, why is that? I believe once again, a lot of it goes back to the men. It would really shock me if those women out there in that situation, they had loving fathers and loving husbands. If they did, I don't think they'd be out there. And if they were, they wouldn't be mad about it. Listen, if men would be the loving fathers and the loving godly husbands that they were called to be, the feminist movement goes away overnight and this country turns around immediately. Amen. We see that the feminist movement came from the fall. 
It has to do with authority. And I would say, too, before we come to a close, before we get into the message next week, I, the, the, the thing I want to leave you with, with is this. Men, you are commanded to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a sacrificial love. But, but ladies, you're commanded to joyfully submit to your husband as unto the Lord in the same way that you would Christ. And I hope that you submit joyfully to Christ. So again, man, if your wife doesn't respect you and has no desire to submit to your God-given authority, it's the duty as the priest of your home to find out why. I'm just spoiler alert, man. There's almost a 100% chance that you're at least 50% guilty for the way that she responds to you and feels about you. And ladies, if you have no desire to submit to your husband, you just, I mean, you just get nauseated thinking about that, then you have to ask why. There's almost a 100% chance that you're at least 50% responsible for the way that you feel about that. Humble yourselves before God. Submit to Christ and to each other and watch the change that the Lord brings into your home and marriage. Listen, a, a Christian home, I mean, I, I get it. Things happen. We're under a lot of influence in this world. Christian people have problems. I'm not trying to make it out like it's all rainbows and skittles. It's not. But the, the Christian home ought to be a little piece of heaven on earth. I mean, it, it ought to be different than the world. We ought to be different. And as I read from J.C. Winger, the early church made such an impact because they were so different than the pagan world around them. They... They recognized the difference in the way that they loved each other and the way uh, that the marriages fit together and, and the way that they had joy, even in hard circumstances. If we don't have any power in our homes, we're not going to have any power in the world. And that's all there is to it. And you have to ask yourself, if we're having these problems, why 